The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I am your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, aka Timothy Toastmaster, excited and committed to bringing you informative, inquisitive, and just plain fun positive talk radio. So here we go. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And today we are in for an adventure that has many facets, which will reveal themselves as we go along. My guest is UCI's medical director for the Transfusion Medicine Service, which encompasses three areas, the Transfusion Services Laboratory, a.k.a. the Blood Bank, the UCI Blood Donor Center, and the UCI Aphericist Service, which we'll find out more about like what that is. And the director in charge of all this is the one, the only, Dr. Min Ha Tran. Welcome, Dr. Tran. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome, sir. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Well, please, I love to ask my guests, just at the beginning, where were you born and what year were you born? Sure, I was born in Vietnam in 1963. In 1963? 73. 73, gotcha. So how long did you live in Vietnam? I was only there for the first two years of my life. Okay, so you have no memory of that, right? No. So 73, 75, was the fall of Vietnam 75? Yes, yeah. So was your family, was that difficult for them to leave or not? Could you please just kind of, can you give us a little sense of your family, you know, how they were doing and, and how they got out? Yeah, my mom told me that she had wanted to stay and then she had gotten advice from people. So my mom met my biologic dad. He was doing his mandatory civil service. He was from France. And he came to do his civil service in in a hospital where my mom was working. That's where they met. She got pregnant with me, but she didn't tell him that she was pregnant. She said that her thinking at the time was, you know, she didn't, she was just this independent woman. And, you know, she just decided she was going to roll with it. And um, so what happened was her, her family and friends were saying that, well, he doesn't, you know, when I was born, you know, she was like, everyone was like, well, he doesn't look full Vietnamese. And once the communists take over, 
he'll sort of become a pariah, like a social pariah. They'll discriminate against him. They'll think he's a GI baby and this and that. And so the way my mom explains it, that had a lot to do with her decision to ultimately leave. So her sister, my aunt, well, so like we, we came to the U.S. through a refugee resettlement program. They had a number of them around that time. And I'm not sure exactly which one we came through, whether it was orderly departure program or whichever one, but but that's the one that we came through. So, <laughs> so the story is my mom comes over with me in tow and uh, her sisters and other, some, a few relatives, and we landed at Camp Pendleton. So that was the first, it was the first resettlement camp we landed at. And apparently, okay, so my mom tells it, my aunt made her mad because she introduced my, she was sensitive about my appearance, right? So she said, oh, this is my sister and her adoptive son. <laughs> and my mom was like, livid. She hated, <laughs> oh, oh, you, oh, no, you didn't. You didn't just say that. And she took the next ticket. Okay, so this is my mom, okay? Like, she's in a brand new country. She didn't know anybody in the, I mean, she just took the first ticket to Indian Town Gap Resettlement Camp in Pennsylvania. She was, and left her sister. <laughs> she just like took off. Yeah. So she alone at Indian Town Gap Resettlement Camp in Pennsylvania. And that's where she met my, my dad. So my dad, <laughs> yeah. And, and that, then, that, yeah. That's, you know, that, that story that right there, that's a whole show as it is. Oh my that God. Is, that Dude. is amazing. Your mom just must be so freaky independent that's amazing oh yeah yeah she's amazing yeah so do you have part of that do you feel like that's part of your persona or like oh no my mom is a samurai compared to oh no i yeah i feel like she's uh on a whole nother level (laughs) (laughs) gotcha wow so you're in pennsylvania yeah so then did you say that she met the man she would actually marry Right. Yeah. And, and, and there were a number of bits and pieces to the, so she she met him there. And then, and then I think, I think we moved around a little bit. There were some very generous people who helped sponsor us for the the first sort of like several months in the U S and, and and then finally, I think um, my mom and dad settled in Iowa. There was a a very, and, and there was, so there was a very, um, welcoming Catholic churches mm. and they were, they had support and stuff. So they, they had people that, that helped us out and they introduced us to a family that helped us out. Like, were they farmers yeah. by chance or no, no, no. I called them grand grandpa, Bob and grandma, Marilyn. That's what I called them. And you know, it was really nice. I mean, it was mostly like, Oh, we would go to their place for, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas and those types of things. And they were just very nice and helped us to, acclimatized to the new surroundings and then and so you know the first portion it was like my dad was working like three jobs and my mom was working three jobs and then they both sort of supported i mean it was it was you know they were really just saving every penny and 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 trying to make it and um um during that time my dad my mom kind of encouraged my dad to to because he was really good at math, but his language skills were not very very good. Yeah. And so she encouraged him to to go through a machinist program. So he became a machinist. Yeah. And he did really well in the program. Like he was like kind of top marks. And um yeah, yeah. and I remember when I was a kid, I remember um my playroom when I was a kid. This was in Iowa. Yeah. I ran across several years later one of the books he studied from yeah. and uh, for his machinist program. And uh 
I mean, this is just an example of, of their, yeah. gr their grit, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I flipped through the book, and he had written over the English text, he had written the Vietnamese translation, and it was just page after page after page of this. Like, he was just trying to study and understand it. And, yeah. and I, I just remember thinking, like, and I was just a kid. And I was like, oh, my God, you know? Yeah. Um, so he, he, he went through that, and d during that time, my, my mom... You know, my mom, by that point, she, okay, so, like, she had um, already gotten, like, a nursing degree in Vietnam. Um, she had wanted to go to medical school, but um, I, I think it wasn't favorable for women at the time. And then she, so she got an RN degree, and then she, you know, before the fall of Vietnam, she had already, before she conceived me, she had already gone and pursued, like, graduate studies mm -hmm. in Germany. Mm -hmm. So, wow. so graduate studies in Germany. And so, you know, so like previously, as you know, Vietnam was a French colony for a while. So a lot of the older generations learned French. So she speaks like four languages and she's English, French, German, Vietnamese, obviously. Yeah. And so she was pretty, she had, I mean, like a graduate degree from Germany and then a nursing degree. And so she was pretty accomplished by the time we went to the U.S. And then she met a mentor at university of Iowa who kind of really helped her and w was like, Oh my God. Like, so she was able to pursue, I think it was like a master's in social work at university of Iowa. And wow. so she's done a lot. Yeah. She's yeah. 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 What part of Iowa were you guys? Is, is the university of Iowa? Is that like, well, that was like, um, Iowa city. And then, so I think I was in like daycare in Iowa city. And then after that we moved to Cedar Rapids. So, Okay. Gotcha. Most of our time was in Cedar Rapids. Gotcha. Wow. That's that's an incredible story. But we have to push on. Well, I'd love sure. to hear more about that sometime. So you were there until you, you were about eight years old. Is that true? Finished uh, seventh grade in Iowa. Oh, okay. And then where did you go? San Diego. Oh, okay. Yeah. And how come you moved to San Diego? You know, I found out later that there was a little bit of a bet going on between my parents my mom had a job offer in like Michigan or something, but my dad wanted to go to San Diego. He wanted to escape the Iowa winters, but my mom liked the winters and she had this job offer and, and it was, it was dependent. The offer was standing, but it was dependent on the person getting some grant approved. And that would be the mechanism by which he would pay her. But then, so then my mom and dad were like, okay, whoever gets the, you know, the job first, that's where mm -hmm. we're going. And so my dad landed the, you know, he got the job first. So that's where we went. Gotcha. Gotcha. Wow. Yeah. So where, where'd you go to high school in San Diego? Uh, Mira Mesa. Mira Mesa High. Mesa. Okay. So pretty close to the coast, right? Is you know, kind of everywhere in San Diego is 20 minutes from everywhere else. So yeah, yeah it's like a 20 minute drive. <laughs> okay. Excuse me just for a moment, doctor, while I update our audience. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bostemeyer. And my guest today is UCI's medical director for the Transfusion Medicine Service, Dr. Minha Tran. His responsibilities include the blood donation centers on our multiple campuses, as well as providing the UCI Medical Center with much-needed blood for patients. And we're just getting to his story where they moved to San Diego, and he's in high school getting ready for college, and he was originally born in Vietnam. So, Dr. In high school, are you thinking, oh, yeah, for sure I'm going to, to college? Or how did that play out? Yeah, I think it was a given. I don't think I ever thought 
I wasn't going to yeah. go to college. Especially with that mom. I don't think so. I think it was. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So where did you go to for your undergrad? San Diego State. Okay. I filled out exactly one college application. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That makes it easy. And did you know what you'd study right away or did you kind of transition into it? You know, I, <laughs> I started out thinking I was going to study psychology and I, I got fairly, you know, maybe a couple of years into psychology and then I, I changed my mind. It kind of found it wasn't for me. And around that time, my grandmother had come from Vietnam oh. and she was in her 80s and she had some health issues. And I started kind of getting involved with taking her to her doctor appointments here and there. And yeah. she was in the emergency department a couple of times and I had taken her to an, to an ophthalmology appointment. And I think that was my first introduction toward, to the medical field. And that's where I think my interest started. Gotcha. And what was your undergrad in? Uh, ended up being uh, biology. Okay. Yeah. And then did you know right away that you'd go to medical school or how did that evolve? Right. No, no, I didn't. I didn't know. Um, oh. so it was kind of like maybe the second year in to college that mm -hmm. I kind of decided. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So did you go right to uh, grad school from your undergraduate work? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, from college to medical school. Yeah. And where'd you go to medical school? Western University. And where's that again? It's in Pomona. Oh, Pomona. Okay, great. And what did you emphasize initially? You know, going through medical school, I think people kind of, you know, you, you only know what you know, right? So like, and as you go through rotations and things, you get more exposure to different specialties. So I think I finished medical school thinking I was either going to go into emergency medicine or family medicine, one of the two. But then during internship, I had a really influential mentor who turned me on to hematology. And I think from that point on, I, I kind of wanted to do something with hematology, but I didn't quite know what exactly. Mm -hmm. And when and you say hematology, is that blood? Yeah, but it's a very broad field. There's a lot to hematology. There's like malignant hematology, there's non-malignant hematology, and then there's supportive fields related to it, which is kind of where I ended up. So there's a lot to it. It's very broad. Did you achieve your MD? So I finished medical school in 2000, and so I ha I'm a DO, so I have my doctor of osteopathy that I got from Western U. Could you explain to our, our listeners, because I think that's a little confusing. So there's an MD degree, and then there's a DO, right? Yeah. Could you distinguish those two for us? Sure. So originally, osteopathy was credited to Andrew Taylor Still, who was a physician. He was an MD. So during the time he was a physician, I think he was dissatisfied. This was probably in the 1800s or something. He was dissatisfied with some of the treatment options available. And he was very much influenced by Eastern medicine and manual medicine, like using hands and to, you know, laying hands on. And so that's kind of where you know, we're taught that some of the osteopathic principles came from. Mm -hmm. And so he went on to found the first school of osteopathic medicine and then more and more kind of sprouted up after that. So essentially, modern day osteopathic medical schools, they have a curriculum that's very similar. It's, it's basically the same curriculum that an allopathic medical school would have or an MD school, except that on top of it, you would learn manual medicine, like ways to 
diagnose and treat you know, various conditions using your hands. It's an additional diagnostic and treatment modality. So in the U.S., once you get a DO degree, you have all the rights and privileges described to you that an MD would have. So equal sort of access to residency training and fellowship training and things mm-hmm. like that. In other parts of the world, the DO practice is more limited, but in the U.S., it's equivalent in a way to an MD. Okay. And is there synergy with what Samueli Institute is trying to, would you say that it very much is in line with that? Oh, absolutely. I think it's just an issue that you would, you would just have to find, I mean, a lot of people obtain a DO degree and they don't always specialize in the manual medicine portion of it, but there are like dedicated residents. I mean, there are residencies dedicated to manual medicine and there are people who are very, very um, into it and practice it and, um, so yeah, so anybody in that situation where they're just really, really good at it and very accomplished at it, that would fit really well into Samueli. Absolutely. Yeah. So once you finished with your medical schooling and you finished with your residency, where did you go? So I did a, an osteopathic rotating internship at the time that I did that internship. The hospital was called St. John West Shore and now it's, it's called St. John Medical Center. It's in Westlake, Ohio. And then from there, I went and I did a a categorical internal medicine residency at Mercy Hospital of Pittsburgh, which at the time was Pittsburgh Mercy Health System, part of Catholic Charities East. But that hospital ended up being purchased by University of Pittsburgh. So now it's called UPMC Mercy. (laughs) And then so from there, I I went to National Institutes of Health for a blood banking transfusion medicine fellowship. Mm, So that's where you really honed your skills into the blood banking area. Yeah, that's my specialty. So once you finished with your fellowship, that was like June of 2006, where did you go after that? I worked at Institute for Transfusion Medicine for a while. That was a really great experience for me. And then from there, I went to FDA for a little bit. And then after that, I came to UCI. How did you come to UCI? Did you, was it a personal <laughs> connection or did you, yeah, you, did you seek it out? Absolutely. Yeah, I did. Uh, You know, so the transition from Institute for Transfusion Medicine, you know, working there was really neat um, because I had rotated there as a resident. And that's where I really discovered transfusion medicine. So when I came back to work there as an attending, I felt like I was coming home to family, you know, I was coming back to these really great people that I knew. So I was really happy there. But when I transitioned from there to FDA, it was more to you know, there were, there was, it was to solve a, like a long distance relationship thing, frankly. And so when I went to FDA, it was a great job from the standpoint that I gained a lot by being there. You know, they, you know, they, they gave biostatistics class, you know, they, they put me through like a technical writing class, I got leadership courses. I got, to, I mean, it's a really great place to work from an employee and, and employee development standpoint. I had a really great supervisor who I still keep in touch with to this day. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it was a really great job. It just, it just wasn't a good fit for me. And I was really wanting to be, I, I had been away from, at that point, my mom and dad for over a decade. And so I, I was feeling like I wanted to be a better son and be close to them. And <laughs> yeah. so then I, I started thinking that I, I needed to kind of make a, make a, make a move back. Yeah. And so, and yeah, where, I, I started. Where were, where were your folks living? San Diego. So you started to kind of look on the West Coast? Yeah. 
so how did a UCI come into focus? I just was reaching out to people. I said, you know, my network of folks and, hey, do you know anybody hiring and what are the various centers? And so, yeah, so then I, I made some connections and then was told about UCI. So they were in a position at the time that I was applying where they, they needed a person. And so I just reached out <laughs> I just <Yeah>. emailed. <laughs> and then I, yeah, so that, that, that's what I did. Yeah. Any um, names that we might recognize that you, you know, initially, you know, were part of your evaluation or interviewing with? You know, it's, it's funny, you know, when I was looking for work out here, one of, one of the people in my network said, oh, you should talk to um, Alyssa as I'm in. And so Alyssa is the transfusion medicine. At the time, she was a medical, I think she still is, but she's the transfusion medicine director at UCLA. Oh, okay. Um, so I reached out to her and she go, oh, you know, I think UCI needs somebody. So I reached out to UCI and then they were like, oh yeah, you know, and, you know, so then at the time they set things up for me and it, it, it worked out. So I had, and I had also interviewed at, it's called Lifestream. It's a, a blood center in the Inland Empire, San Bernardino. So I got offers from both places, but I think I really wanted to be in an academic medical center and be around residents and, and fellows, things like that. So I chose UCI. Yeah. And then not long after that, I remember there was a California Blood Bank Society meeting in, and it was in Lake, they held it in Lake Tahoe that year. And, and I remember going to that meeting and, and, and it just so happened that Alyssa was at that meeting. I was like, Alyssa, I promised myself if I, if I saw you, I would give you a hug because you helped me get my, my job. And you know, it was, so it was really fun. It was nice. Yeah. That's great. So please tell us when you first came to UCI, what were your, you know, what were your positions? So I was associate medical director of the transfusion medicine service at the time. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI conversation show, where today I'm interviewing Dr. Min Ha Tran, who's the medical director for the UCI Transfusion Medicine Center, which includes the campus blood donation centers and the blood bank. A lot goes into having blood ready for in-need patients and stem cell recipients. Listen to these amazing details. Can you tell us all about the Transfusion Medical Center? Like, Because I think, you know, we don't know. From the outside, we don't really. I mean, we know trans, what transfusions are. We know, but can, can you kind of refine this a little bit? So blood banking and transfusion medicine is a relatively new subspecialty. Hmm. Uh, it, it is its board. The, the board examination is administered administered by the American Board of Pathology. Um, I mean, I would I would say that the, the specialty probably had its birth around the time of the HIV epidemic in the United States, mm. at a time where you know, in some regions of the country, the you know the risk of contracting HIV from a red cell transfusion was as high as one in a hundred. And so, so I, I think where I trained, I, I had the distinct honor of training under um, one of the sort of leaders in the field is Dr. Harvey, uh, Harvey Klein, who's since retired, but um, blood banking and transfusion medicine sort of comes at the intersection of hematology, medicine, laboratory, and regulatory. So there's, so it, it's a very interesting and complex field where it offers an amazing breadth of practice opportunity. So for example, we do do some portion of 
you could think of it as community health in a way because we see healthy blood donors and we do perform screening tests. So there's some interaction with donors from that standpoint. And then those collected products must undergo subsequent manufacturing. And so because blood products are considered by the FDA, they meet the criteria for drug, uh, meaning blood products, you know, anything that is meant to diagnose, treat, or mitigate disease. So that would be the qualification for a drug. So even some tests would fall under the FDA's definition of a drug. So because blood products fall under that definition, they are under the FDA's regulatory oversight. Mm -hmm. So all of the subsequent manufacturing that takes place, we have to abide by, you know, even the screening of donors, we have to abide by FDA mandate. It's law. So we have to follow the law. And all of this is codified in the Code of Federal Regulations. You know, anything related to screening donors and testing of blood products for transfusion, et cetera, et cetera. So we have to follow all those rules. And we have a compliance uh, apparatus set up. We have a compliance officer. We have technologists and managers and supervisors who are very um, well-versed in sort of these regulatory aspects of the job. And so we, we have to follow all these rules when we man manufacture blood products for subsequent transfusion. So those blood products are manufactured. So during the first portion of their manufacture, they're in quarantine, and then they go over to general inventory once all of the relevant screening tests have come back and, and are acceptable. They go into general inventory. And then when physicians place orders, then we can you know, issue blood products based on those orders. And we also perform compatibility testing, right? So the blood has to be judged to be compatible with the recipient. So then there's testing involved in that. So that's like the donor center and then the transfusion services lab. In the donor center, we collect products, not just like a simple phlebotomy, like a whole blood collection, but we also do apheresis collection, like with um, like platelet collection through a cell separator and an instrument. So that's the donor and the blood bank side of things. The blood bank supports a lot of programs that are um, blood resource intensive, like for example, trauma, we're a level one trauma center. We do have patients periodically who require significant transfusion support. And so that's part of our job there. And then there's the therapeutic apheresis service. So therapeutic apheresis would be using the same instruments basically or similar instruments to what we use in the donor center, but yet applying it in the patient realm. So to treat various diseases on the patient side, like help treat renal transplant rejection, or you know, if, if a patient has sickle cell disease and they need a red cell exchange as part of their care, we would offer that. We have patients who have graft-versus-host disease after transplants. So we have a different therapeutic apheresis modality for that called extracorporeal photophoresis. And then as an offshoot of the therapeutic process, you know, sort of the donor, I guess it's an offshoot of the donor collection process. We do do mononuclear cell collections for research trials. And then we also do um, stem cell collections for stem cell transplant. Wow. A lot going on. You know, when somebody donates blood, how long will that be? Is fresh the word for it? Or how long will it be good? Yeah, that's a good question. Like, what's the shelf life? So for red cells, most places will manufacture most of their red cells uh, using a process that incorporates the addition of additive solution. So additive solution extends the shelf life of red blood cells to 42 days. And that's when they're stored at one to six degrees centigrade. And then plasma, because it's a frozen product, you can keep it for one year. 
wow. And then platelets have a shelf life of five days. Five days. Wow. How much expires? Is it like, oh, it's just part of our, you know, it's part of our formula that 50% will expire or 25% or? Oh, no, we're, we're very low. So, so that's a really actually a good question. So this, this gets back to inventory management. So Mm -hmm. blood, because it has a limited shelf life, Mm -hmm. the inventory strategy is called just in time inventory. It's kind of like milk at the grocery store. So if your inventory, if your stocking is too rich, then you expire excessively, right? And then that becomes wasteful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you, if you stock in a fashion that's too lean and you're not expiring at all, then right. you have no cushion should somebody come along who requires more blood than you might have on hand. Right. right. So our expiration rates and our wastage rates are very, very low. So we're in like the two to three percent range. Oh wow. Um, wow. So we're we're low. And part of that is because we're in a blood shortage right now. So things are just flying off the shelf. Our red cells really don't age on the shelf. So that's part of it is is right now we're in that situation. <laughs> in terms of storage of the blood, you know, do you keep it all in one place or it's like, oh no. You know, the red cells go over there, the white cells go over there. How is that organized? Yeah, so um, the different products have different storage requirements. So we have freezers for plasma, and then we have refrigerators for red cells. And then we have a special setup for platelets. So there's a device called a rotator. So the platelets are stored on a rotator. And then around that is an incubator. So the rotator ensures that there's constant agitation of the platelets during their shelf life. And that makes sure that there's adequate gas exchange with the environment going on. And then the incubator maintains the temperature. So maintenance of temperature and making sure you're within all the temperature ranges is an important part of what we do. So we kind of have a sense of, you know, the protocols and the importance of, of shelf life and so forth. Is there things that keep you up at night. I don't think you're just sitting in your office whistling Dixie. <laughs> what What's keeping you jumping? <laughs> well, you know, we, we do have a, you know, a busy service. So, you know, I want to make sure that I'm, you know, when I do have contact with patients, that I'm compassionate and, and that I say the right things and that I support them. And I want to make sure that if I'm overseeing a procedure that are making the right decisions and that kind of surprises me so you are having direct contact i almost thought that you were the kind of in the background but are are you having daily contact with patients so you, you are you, you definitely are in the forefront like yeah here here's the the blood doctor <laughs> or... yeah i mean that gets back to you know and okay so like Absolutely. So we have a, an apheresis clinic. So we do have outpatients that come for various types of apheresis treatments. Mm. We have patients with sickle cell disease that we do red cell exchange on as an outpatient. And patients with complications of renal transplant that we do. You know, complication is not the right word. So some patients develop kidney disease for a certain reason, and then it can recur in the allograft. So it's not really a complication. It's more like disease recurrence. So one example of that is a disease called FSGS. It can recur in the allograft kidney. And so we support patients with that. 
and diagnosis. Sometimes patients after renal transplant develop rejections. So we do do some limited courses of plasma exchange for that. But yeah, we see patients. So we have an outpatient apheresis service and inpatient apheresis service. Every now and then I'll be asked to see somebody in the hospital with like a non-malignant hematology condition, but that's more kind of a unique niche. Um, oh. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, I was starting to get the impression that you were kind of making the rounds in the hospital, but that's more unique. You have a, you're having a frequent contact with patients, but not, not necessarily in the hospital setting and in these other. Yeah, other we do have inpatients, but I'm not the primary team. So I'm, I'm a, a consultant. So, um, so yeah, it's, my role is, is more specific to, you know, everyone kind of has their piece of the pie in the treatment, in yeah. the treatment, uh, a team. So I kind of focus on what I was asked to manage. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. How, how big is your area? So there's three physicians in our group. Okay. So we take turns being on service and on call. I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but I have 15, 17 technologists in the blood bank and maybe 12, 13 in the donor center. Is the blood bank where you keep the blood and the donor centers where, I think people hear those two terms and they think it's the same thing, but is it blood banks where the blood's kept and then the donor centers where people donate blood? Yeah, and the qualifications are different for the employees. So the blood bank is staffed by clinical laboratory scientists Hmm. and hospital laboratory technologists. And this is where we do the laboratory testing related to transfusion, like pre-transfusion testing, compatibility testing, working up any transfusion reactions, helping out with immunohematology evaluations. And then it's also where we do product modification, like if a product needs to be washed or irradiated or aliquoted. <laughs> and then it's, it's also where we do processing, so where we manufacture so, so, for example, we manufacture whole blood into fresh frozen plasma and red blood cells. That's an example. And then we do do um, subsequent manufacturing for platelets, and that includes quality control measures and things like that. So that's what happens in the blood bank. Again, that's clinical laboratory scientists and hospital laboratory technicians. And then in the blood donor center, we have you know the staffing, the, the qualifications are different there. So we have RNs and phlebotomists. So that crew there is focused on screening blood donors and doing the mini physicals, accomplishing the blood collection process, getting people on platelet phoresis and doing the initial stages of processing involved in taking the platelet concentrate off of the apheresis instrument and resuspending it and getting it ready for transport over to the blood bank. And then they do fixed drives where they're at a fixed center, like at our, at our blood donor center in Orange, and then also at our blood donor center in Irvine. And then they also help to manage our mobile blood drives, the bus. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is Dr. Min Ha Tran, who's the medical director of the UCI Transfusion Medicine Center which encompasses the blood donation centers and the blood bank. Here, Dr. Tran goes into some of the amazing protocols that go into keeping blood safe for patient recipients. 
So, you know, I think the general public knows, you know, the different blood types, but it sounds like there's a lot more that goes into the categorization of different blood types. Like you're actually yeah. doing more sophisticated tests to, to assure that the blood will be accepted by the patient. Is, is that what I hear? Right. So, I mean, if, you know, so when we receive blood transfusions, we're receiving, I guess you could call it foreign antigens, right? So red blood cells, aside from ABO and RH, there's a slew of other non-ABO antigens carried on their surface. And so our immune system might decide <laughs> to make an antibody against an antigen that a donor red cell expresses that our own do not, right? So that's called an alloantibody. So a small proportion of transfusion recipients may develop uh, red cell alloantibodies. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm talking about the general population of recipients, not special categories of uh, transfusion recipients. But in general, the, the rate of alloimmunization is low. But if somebody does make an antibody, then our blood bank will, will, you know, for those people who were transfused at UCI, will keep a record of what antibodies they've made in the past, mm -hmm. whether they're clinically relevant or not. Mm -hmm. and we will make sure that they do not receive red cells that express that antigen in the future, if at, if at all possible. And then if they develop new antibodies, then that's part of our job is to detect those new antibodies and then mm. make sure that the transfusions are compatible. So that's the compatibility testing is to look to assess whether somebody has any antibodies or historic antibodies that need to be honored and then to honor those. How about the hematopoietic stem cell transplant area? Did, did I pronounce that right, first of all? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Thanks, I practiced. <laughs> Can you tell us about that? So before I came to UCI, my understanding is that historically there was a stem cell transplant program in effect, but I, I don't really know that much about its history because it predated me. But it became, so our cancer center director, Dr. Van Etten, he recognized that there was a need in Orange County to have a stem cell transplant center and there was a need at UCI to, to be that transplant center. You know, UCI is a, is a tertiary slash quaternary referral center. We get transfers of patients from all over who have very complex medical conditions, including lymphomas and leukemias and things like that. So I, th I think it was, you know, Dr. Van Enten had put forward a desire to start a transplant program. And then, you know, years later, here we are. And it's, it's really amazing, you know, um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot to set up. There, there's a lot of things to develop, a lot of processes for, for transplant to take place. And there's a lot of coordination that, that is required. And so I've been part of that mm -hmm. from its inception here. And it's been a really kind of rewarding journey. <laughs> mm -hmm. How many years has it been running now? I would say that we we probably started our our working group meetings, we had these large working group meetings probably in like November of 018. Oh, okay. And there were some groups that went and visited other transplant centers sort of as a information gathering program. Yeah. yeah. We identified stakeholders across the institution, you know, on many, many different areas of expertise are required from environmental services to infection control to 
facilities to, I mean, that's before we even really even get to the medical stuff, right? So, I mean, a lot of things have to be in place for this. And then contracts and uh, finding various vendors for the, the services that we would need and um, getting involved with them. And then we had to find a director for the transplant program who came, I think, in was it March or May of 2020. And so in May of 2020, we did our first um, transplant. So that was oh, amazing. Okay. And we, who's the person that's in ch- charge that you said that you... It, Dr. Stefan Chorea. So he came from MD Anderson, where he was already an accomplished transplant physician. So gotcha. very fortunate uh, to have him. He's really an amazing guy. <laughs> wow. How often can you just call it a stem cell transplant? How, how often do we, and, and those would all be done at the medical center, right? Is that, yeah. Yeah. Okay. In the hospital. I mean, it's not like a, it's not an outpatient thing or. Well, I think some centers for very carefully selected patients uh, uh-huh. might uh, consider an outpatient transplant. Uh-huh. And I think okay. that might be on our horizon as well. But currently, we're conducting them as inpatient. Gotcha. And how often do we do that at our medical center? We're probably in the range of, uh, on average, like one or two a month at this point, sometimes okay. more, sometimes less. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's exciting. And it's and you, like, We've been going for a couple of years and we just, there's no reason to think we're not going to continue to grow and advance in this area. Is, is that right. what you would say? Right. Yeah. How about when you donate blood at UCI, the main campus in Irvine, does the blood every day go to the UCI medical or, or to the blood bank or, or is there a blood bank in the, on our main campus? Yeah. So all of the blood that we collect in Irvine or on our mobiles is packaged into validated shipping containers and then transported back to or shipped back to UCI blood bank. Gotcha. On a daily basis? Daily, yeah. Seems like it makes sense. How can we help? How do people get involved to donate blood or anything else? Can you just give us a brief description of that? Yeah, people can come check us out, come donate blood. We're at ucihealth.org, and then you can go to medical-services forward slash blood donations. You can also call uh, 714-456-LIFE and uh, schedule an appointment. Right now, we're doing all of our appointments scheduling by schedule. That's part of the COVID restrictions and sort of being very careful. So people, if they're interested in helping us out and donating blood with us, like I said, you can go to our website. We're at www.ucihealth.org forward slash blood drive forward slash find dash a dash drive. And then that gives all of the opportunities for um, scheduling blood donation or platelet donation as well. Doctor, what do you enjoy most about your job? <laughs> you know, I, I think it's really a fun job. I, I get to work with really amazing people. And that includes um, not just the people I work with, but the patients that I work with. Um, I get to express myself in my patient care. You know, just today I was seeing somebody who was very anxious and nervous. Mm -hmm. And I was able to sort of judge the situation a little bit. And his wife was there. And and I, I told him a humorous story. And it seemed to put him at ease. And he was laughing. And it made a connection and a bond. It was nice. I mean, it's just... It's, it's really cool. And then I get to work with, you know, blood transfusion cuts across all specialties, right? So I get to work with 
you know, obstetrics, you know, with trauma surgeons, with cancer doctors, with internal medicine doctors, with surgeons, like it really cuts across all fields. And I get exposure to a lot of different subspecialties and get to work with a lot of different people. So it's really a rewarding field. And then, you know, you get to see healthy donors too. And, and so it's like healthy people from the community and, and as well as, you know, patients that, that you get to help kind of working as a team to bring that all about. It's, it's really fun. How about the hardest, what's difficult about your job? Um, I mean, I think we, we have to kind of do it all in the setting of um, making sure that we're uh, proceeding in an, in a cost effective fashion. For example, right now, like we're, we're um, also having, you know, we're, we're trying to recruit more staff members, you know, so there's, you know, like trying to, to make sure that, that morale uh, stays high among our peeps. So I think that can be challenging, you know, just kind of um, working within sort of what everybody is dealing with is trying to, be cost effective and do things in a fashion that we're not overstressing our employees and things like that. So I think those can be challenging sometimes. Mm, gotcha. How about in terms of your professional career or, 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 or any other area, do you, can you think of like any time that you had adversity in your life that, you know, that you had to, you know, grind through and can you, you know, I think a lot of times with students, they kind of think of professors and doctors like, oh, it was kind of easy or something. Can you think of any time that you had adversity that you, you know, had to work or grind through just to come out on the other side? Is, is, does anything come to mind? Well, when I, was in, when I was in internship, so internship, when I was in my medicine residency, internship is probably the hardest year. Um, you know, it it comes at a time when we are youthful and maybe have not developed all of our, fully developed all of our coping mechanisms yet. And it comes at a time, and, and it involves, you know, for me, it involves, you know, some like, you know, you work long hours, you know, so it can be grueling. And then, you know, I felt like at that time I was just starting as a, as a medicine resident. And so, you know, I'm just starting in my learning and my apprenticeship, like I, I felt like I didn't know anything. And, and, you know, there were a lot of patients who had a lot of needs. And I was, you know, it was just, it was a tough year, you know. Um, and, and I think there were times during that year where I was like, oh, my God, did I make the wrong decision? Like, oh, what did I get myself into, you know, and, mm. and especially like on night float months, you just be exhausted, you know, and tired. And Would you but, say night, night slow months? Night, we had, you know, where I did residency, we had, it's called a night float system. What's that? So some programs for medicine, when you're on call, they have like a Q4, like you're on call every fourth night. Other programs have adapted a night float system where, so let's say that you're on medicine wards and there's a night float program in place. During the week, like Monday through Thursday, let me see if I remember, it's been a few years, Sunday, like Sunday, like Monday through Thursday, there would be essentially no, no call. And so you could participate fully with all the educational activities in a fat and clinics and things in a fashion where you're not, you know, post-call and, and, and exhausted. Right. Mm -hmm. So then beginning Friday, 
the day team would split up the weekend for calls. So there would be a Friday night to Saturday and then a Saturday night to Sunday and then like a Sunday day call. And then Sunday night, so Sunday night through Thursday night, the teams would sign up to a night float team. So that night float team only worked at night. So they would work maybe like five, five or six o'clock until like 8.30 in the morning to sign out. And they would cover the house for all things related to uh, patient care. So, the, so for me, the, the difficulty there was night float was such that I, I never quite adapted to the, you know, working nights, right? <laughs> and so it was hard for me to sleep during the day. And so, yeah, it was, it was a tiring month, but, but it was, but when you're not on night float, the rest of the year is, is, is a little, you know, less, less grueling, you know, so it's a nice system. Um, but yeah, that's, that's essentially what night float means. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, on, on a lighter side, I understand that you love ice cream and coffee. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite? ice cream and what's your favorite coffee um i don't you know that's a good question i i i uh i don't know i i really like ice cream sandwiches like neapolitan ice cream sandwiches. oh okay okay very good very good and and um i hear that uh you like to dress up at halloween (laughs) yeah you know it was you know years ago (laughs) Back uh, in the day. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I did, I did come to, you know, this was a while ago, you know, obviously, you know, we don't, we don't do it anymore at work, but, but at one point I remember coming into work dressed as like, like a sixties hippie with the, <laughs> with the wig and, and the whole bell bottoms thing. And, and, pe- and it was fun because people didn't recognize me. And I think they're used to seeing me as sort of this kind of like, you know, straight lace kind of dude and then all of a sudden I, <laughs> they have to look twice like what who's this yeah, uh, yeah that was yeah. A lot. but you know there, there was an ulterior motive to that because it was consistent with the theme of there was a celebration down in aldrich park and we had a blood drive at the same time uh-huh. and, it, and it had to do with it you know we, I think we had these t-shirts at the time it was like peace, love, donate. <laughs> uh, uh, I think I've seen so, that, yeah. So that was the theme. And, and so I was down at Aldrich Park and I was in this get up and, you know, oh, kind yeah. Of yeah. and then I was like, Hey, I'm just going to roll up to the medical center and see what happens, you know? And then yeah. Perfect. I didn't, really, I didn't, I didn't try to get into any patient care areas, but in the lab, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Very good. Well, Hey, I promised an adventure um, and it totally has been an adventure, but just to bring it full circle, have you ever met your biological dad? Oh yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really cool. Um, <laughs> my wife and I were on our baby moon. We're so, so at the time that, that you, go, you, you said a baby, what we call it a baby moon because at the time that, um, that I first met her and we got married and everything, I was kind of solo here. So it was really hard to take an extended um, vacation. So it yeah. wasn't until she was like five months pregnant that we went on vacation, like our, our honeymoon. It was kind of the first. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Baby moon. Okay. Yeah. So so we went throughout Europe on our baby moon. And, and we happened to be in Paris. And my wife says, why don't you email him? And I go, really? She goes, yeah. Why don't you email him? I go, had okay. you ever met him before yet? Not in person, but I had corresponded with him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'd corresponded with him. I just never met him. And yeah. then he was like, oh, why don't you email him? I said, okay. So So I emailed him. And, and he was like, yes, I'm here. I go, no way. You're here. We're here. Are you here? We're here. You know? So then, 
we met up and it was awesome. It was just really Oh cool. my God. What a reunion. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, that's very, very cool. And do you go back to Vietnam ever? I, you know, I, I went when I still had relatives there. Um, ah. So I went like in 96 and then again in 06. Okay. Um, but then since then, those relatives have have uh, moved to different places. And so I haven't I haven't gone back since then. And yeah, so gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Doctor, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure to meet you and to hear all about the great things that you and your team are doing. And it was a lot of fun, too. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Kevin. Thank you again to Dr. Minha Tran, Medical Director of the UCI Transfusion Medicine Service. He took us on a wonderful adventure into the worlds of the UCI Blood Donation Centers, the UCI Blood Bank, and stem cell transplants. He and his team are another part of the terrific synergy that makes UCI what it is, a world-class public university. Zot, zot, zot. Thank you also to Dr. Tran for his endearing personal stories about meeting his biological father for the first time and his journey from Vietnam. And now coming up next at the top of the hour is the Ash Coomer Show, the interesting program that interviews interesting people from all walks of life. Stay tuned. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders innovators, and zod, 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 everyday anteaters. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. This edition of UCI Conversations and all my past shows are always available 24-7 on my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com. And you can always reach me with comments or suggestions at kboss at kuci.org. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. That's it for today's show. Now signing off with the blues boogie woogie of piano med Fred Kaplan from his CD signifying. So long, everybody. Happy trails. (laughs) 